Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the podcast. We are the Ambassadors at Large. My name is Joe Genie, your host based in Washington, D.C. Great to have you with us. This is a podcast about international affairs. Today's topic, we are going to talk about Burkina Faso, and uh, but it's a bit broader than that. The, the title of this episode is Coups in the News, and the reason is that I kind of want to get away from the fact that there's coups in the news. So for those who don't know, Burkina Faso just had a really interesting political development, and uh, it, suffered a, it suffered a coup, and then a combination of domestic and regional pressure basically caused the guys who, who initiated the coup to step down and they were eventually arrested. Uh, we'll, we'll briefly go over the politics of this, but what interests me is not so much the coup itself, but kind of the way in which a country like Burkina Faso is covered. So just a little bit of background, Burkina Faso is a, uh, a small country in West Africa. It's landlocked. It's between Mali, Niger, and a bunch of countries on the coast. And uh, it's a former French colony. And this region, generally, you've got countries that are either that have either been, there are exceptions, but in general, you've got countries where either the president has been in power for 30 years, or there was upheaval like within the last year or two. And for Burkina Faso, you've had both of those. You had a, a president, Blaise Campaore, who seized power in the late 80s and ruled for 27 years and then was overthrown in popular protests last year, you had a new sort of legitimate government come in. And as part of this, the army was behind the new government, but the presidential guard was behind Blaise Campaore, the former president. And just before the presidential guard was due to step aside and basically cede what remaining power they had, they seized the president and took power in a coup and took over the capital. And, uh, what followed was really interesting because the surrounding countries basically pressured them into not going through with this and threw them out of the, the regional group called ECOWAS. Uh, and the army also turned against them and threatened to storm into Ouagadougou and remove them by force. And rather than have a horrendous massacre, they stepped down. And uh, the, the, the leader of uh, the leader of the coup is currently believed to be in custody. It's all very fluid. But what's interesting to me is that a lot of people have never heard of Burkina Faso. It's a pretty small country. It's it's uh, it's just not very well known on the international stage. And it probably got more news coverage because of this than basically everything else in the past year that has happened there. And to me, that's a shame. So uh, I wanted to, instead of focusing on just the coup and just the, the geopolitics, although those are interesting, I wanted to bring on uh, somebody who's traveled in the region a lot uh, to talk about basically everything else, like what it's like to live in a country like this, what it's like what it's like to travel this region. And so I'm delighted to introduce uh, my friend Francis Tapon. Uh, he's a uh, global traveler. He, he has a website, Francis Tapon. Dot com. Uh, he's the author of two books, uh, one, Hike Your Own Hike, Seven Life Lessons from Backpacking Across America, and uh, and also The Hidden Europe, What Eastern Europeans Can Teach Us. He has, a, he has a blog, and he currently has a travel itinerary throughout all 54 countries of Africa. He's halfway there. Uh, Francis, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Joe. 
So you're in South Africa now, and you've basically been kind of working your way, maybe sort of say, you, you actually have this cool map where you can, where people can actually see exactly where you've been, you know, step by step, basically. Yeah, that's a Delorme in-reach device that I use that allows me to track my movements on a GPS, and it uploads it on the internet so that live, anybody can see where I'm at, and I can set it so that it tracks me every 10 minutes or every four hours or any, anywhere in between. It's a good way for people to, especially my mom, to know where the hell I am. <laughs> now, um, so so I, I'm looking at this now, and it, it's really amazing. I mean, there's dot, 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 just you know, a, a line of, of dots that are connected by a, you know, a blue bar that goes basically through uh, most of West Africa down the eastern coast. You've done Angola and, and, and Namibia now. You're... you're um, you're, you're currently in South Africa. There's only one gap that's missing, which is the country we're going to talk about today because you, you lost the device on, on a mountainside, is, is my understanding. Yeah, I was climbing the tallest mountain of Guinea and Cote d'Ivoire, which they happen to share the tallest mountain because it's right on their border. So it's the tallest mountain for each of those countries. And one of my objectives on this trip to all 54 African countries is to climb to the tallest mountain of every African country. So I obsessively went up to that mountain it was a challenge. Uh, we got up like at four or five in the morning, got out and then came back. But on the way back, as, as I was descending, I, I, uh, the thing just fell out of my backpack somehow and was left there behind. So I can actually see exactly where I left it. But of course, I didn't realize that I lost it until it was far too late. So uh, that's where it sits. And so unfortunately, my tracks, my little breadcrumb trail is not doesn't cover uh, Burkina Faso, Mali, or Ghana, because uh, it took me until Accra to get a new device so I could start tracking things again. I love the fact that your device is, in theory, it should probably still be working, right? It's probably still transmitting location data from somewhere <laughs> on a mountain on the uh, the border of Guinea and Burkina, uh, Guinea and, and Cote d'Ivoire. <laughs> yeah, well, yes and no. I mean, the, it has battery life, so eventually oh. the battery would have... It was on when I was, when it fell out. And of course, somebody could recharge it because you just need a mini USB, so it's a universal charger, so anybody could have picked it up and recharged it. But I think Delorme, the company that has this device, I think I deactivated that one, so I don't know. Anyway, it is a funny idea. <laughs> yeah, so um, th this actually brings up an interesting point. So Burkina Faso was a former French colony, and it was part of what is known as French West Africa, which is a, a whole slew of countries, you know, basically the whole you know, Francophone region of, of West Africa. You've got five, at least five or six countries that I can think of off the top of my head that are I part I think there's of this. like a total of 14 French colonies. Yeah, yeah. Total, so, um, which includes Central Africa, by the way. Yeah, so they, yeah, so they had French Central Africa, you had French West Africa, you had all sorts of weird colonial divisions. Cameroon was two countries, it, yeah. it, or two different colonies, it became one. Uh, so, so Burkina Faso was originally called Upper Volta because it was basically the upper part of the Volta River. Um, it got renamed by one of the various military leaders that took power in a coup in the 80s. There's been several of these. Uh, it got renamed Burkina Faso in the mid eighties, which, uh, I believe means land of honest people, uh, which is a great name, I, I think. Um, although it's a lot to live up to. Like if, if you, if you meet some, like a, a, a particularly dishonest person, they're like letting down the country <laughs> because the funny thing though, by the way, I, I think that we should rename it to the land of the optimistic people because Burkina Faso 
is uh, has has topped the polls on Gallup as one of the most op- the most optimistic country, certainly in Africa. So uh, there's something to be said. They may not be the most honest, but definitely the the most uh, optimistic. I, I, that's really. I, I always wonder about that. You know, when when they do polls about like what who's the most optimistic, who's the happiest. It's 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 never quite who you expect. Uh, there's no there there seems to be no correlation to things like income, political stability, whatever. It's it's almost it seems almost random. It's more sort of like a cultural osmosis that takes hold. Yeah, I mean the Danes have been on the top of happiness surveys consistently, not not well, pretty consistently. So and and you go to Denmark, it doesn't feel like super joyful people bouncing around. I, I, I've not actually been to, to Denmark, but you, you are the world traveler. I will take your, I will take your <laughs> word on this. Um, but yeah, so basically they asked in a, it was a 2012 Gallup survey, so a couple of years ago, but um, they asked people to rate their future life on a 1 to 10 scale. And 14 of the 15 most optimistic countries based on, you know, basically say, you know, how, how do you, on a, a 1 to 5 scale, I think they asked. 14 of the top 15 most optimistic countries in the world were all on the African continent, including places like Comoros, Niger, Benin, Guinea, Somaliland region, Chad, Rwanda, Senegal. Only Turkmenistan made it into the top 15. I, wow. And, and those are, can, again, those are not the countries that you would expect. <laughs> yeah, and the, because the reason for that, Joe, is that you and I, growing up in kind of Western society, we uh, kind of see some sort of correlation between GDP and happiness or money and happiness. You know, money can't buy you happiness, but it can certainly help with the down payment. But the bottom line is uh, when you're in these regions, you do feel this ridiculous amount of optimism and like life will get better. Everything will get better. Everything, you know, that's just the way they think. And so uh, we have to kind of disconnect ourselves from our, our traditional way of looking at it, of, of economics and, and just... Uh, Except the fact that ha- optimism and happiness is mostly uh, an affair of the mind. So, so uh, I, I sort of have a, have a couple of questions. So I, I've studied international relations. I, I've spent seven years as a journalist covering them at, from United Nations headquarters. But because I was at United Nations headquarters, I haven't spent a lot of time in many of the, the countries that I covered. Uh, so I've not been to the, the, the West African region at all. So I just have a, a couple of questions one of which is I'm always interested in the sense of, of the extent to which we talk about, you know, national happiness indicator or, or, or optimism indicator. How much is there a sense of, of national identity for the country and how much is there sort of a bleed over? Because a country like Burkina Faso was kind of an arbitrary colonial creation. It had previously been several kingdoms before that. And there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of nomadic people. There's a lot of subsistence farmers. There's a lot of cr- people crossing over uh, in, into other areas in the region. Like, how how much culturally did you find that Burkina Faso shares with its neighbors, and how much of it is sort of distinctly a Burkinabe thing? That's a really tough question, Joe. Um, I think that um, you know you've got a lot of ethnic groups. You know you have like, but but there's one primary. The most dominant is the Mosi ethnic group. They make out about just over four out of ten Burkina Bays. Um, but but the rest is kind of split up. They've got the Gurunsi, the uh, the Senufo, 
They have the Lobi, the Bobo. I mean, all these names are just... And then there's the Fulani, too. The Fulani are quite... Uh, Thing. And so as a result, you know, there is a lot of truth to the fact that the colonialists, they just kind of drew these these lines somewhat randomly um, and breaking up all sorts of uh, potential tribes. But there was a lot of tribes broken up to begin with. And and in other words, I sometimes ask people who complain about the colonialist way of drawing the map, OK, what would you have rather have just like have 500 countries in Africa? In fact, just. Niger, Nigeria has 200 tribes. So would you rather have, you know, people complain about it. They're all forced together. All these tribes that really, you know, don't have much in common or whatever are forced together into one big country called Nigeria. Well, what's the alternative? 200 little Nigerians? <laughs> and how would, you know, and then people move and migrate. And so uh, the what the Europeans did wasn't good and they did a lousy job. But the alternatives aren't that pretty either. And, and even when people have control of the pen themselves, uh, they still do a crappy job at board, drawing borders, uh, as all the wars in Europe have, a, you know, test, as a testament to that. But Burkina Faso's location is really interesting. It kind of, to the north, you have countries that are clearly the Sahel or the Sahara, like Mali and Niger and hi- highly arid and desert countries. And they have a whole series of cultural and political traditions. And then to the south, you've got all these little countries along the uh, the, the West African coast, Ghana, Togo, Benin, Cote d'Ivoire is not so little. Uh, where, I mean, where does Burkina Faso fall in this? Like, uh, uh, You have a bunch of photos on Facebook. We'll, we'll do plugs at the end so people can know where to find you. But uh, you have a bunch of really beautiful photos on Facebook from your travels in this region. Uh, and it's it sometimes... It seems like it's a really geographically diverse place where it's 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 not you know some places look really arid and desert like and some places look very kind of lush and like what you know I've got a friend who's working for the UN in Cote d'Ivoire and she sends me photos from the Abidjan region and and it's you know it's it's it's, it's heavily forested and and it's a totally different environment so where where does where does Burkina Faso get its sort of cultural traditions? Like, where does it, um, what is it, uh, yeah, if you could talk a little bit about, like, what it's, what, what, what stands out there culturally, socially? That's a good question. Um, yeah, I agree with you that the Burkina is it kind of in the, in sandwiched between the Sahel and, you know, the northern part where it's kind of more Arabic culture. You have the kind of dry desert. You've got... Uh, the camels. In fact, the way I entered into Burkina Faso was coming in from Mali. And there was roughly, I think, a 30 kilometer or about a 20 mile distance between like once I left the Mali border to get to the first checkpoint of, of like the, the immigration, which is really hilarious to me because I was thinking to myself, well, it's so easy to just like sneak into this country because you've got 20 kilometers, uh, sorry, 30 kilometers or so of driving. You could like go to the left, go to the right, follow some dirt road, and you would never get caught by the immigration authorities. And out there, that was actually right as I was driving that 30-kilometer section, there was a camel going down the road with the, their owners. Uh, they, were, they were carrying some goods. And so you definitely got a sense, like, I haven't left Mali. It's still the kind of the Mali kind of dry desert field. But then you go further south, and the rest of the country, most of the country, is not like that. It's much more kind of... Uh, um, uh, wet and there's more uh, greenery and that kind of stuff that that it's not this dry desert feel. 
The other thing that uh, you'll notice a lot in Burkina Faso is the, the Muslim population, especially if you go to the further north. So it is, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of divided religiously. So if you're talking about cultural stuff, I think it's about uh, 60% Muslim. You got about 20% Catholic. Uh, you got about another, or maybe, maybe let's say 25% Christian, um, roughly. And then you got the animists. Uh, and that's another thing that throughout Africa, you know, I look at the CIA fact book often to look at the statistics. And oftentimes they'll talk about, you know, a population in West Africa being 30% animist or 50% animist. And these, for those who are not, not sure what animist means, it's people who believe in like uh, very old ancient religions like uh, voodoo or, um, you know, pagan gods and that kind of stuff. Um, so, and, but when I asked people, I picked up around 2000 hitchhikers so far, I picked about a thousand in West Africa. And so I constantly talk and interact with the people and I asked them sometimes, you know, what's your religion? And nobody ever admitted to being an animist. <laughs> nobody says, yeah, I pray to some, you know, little, you know, I do little sacrifices or stuff like that. They always would say Christian or Muslim. That's it. And yet, uh, so I, to unlock that, I finally figured out that people just do a bit of both. And they're just a little bit kind of, uh, what's the word? They're not proud of being an animist. They find that that's like the backward religion. And so they're not comfortable admitting to it, but they still believe it. They feel like Christianity and Islam are like the modern, cool religions. And so those are the ones that they want to say, yeah, 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 I'm a Muslim, I'm a Christian. But then they, you know, they don't, but they still sacrifice the little chicken and, 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 and pray, you know, and do this little incense thing in order to uh, hope that they get well the next day. So it's funny, uh, just the, the, the interplay of different religions. Yeah, and that's, I mean, it, that's the other thing is like there's, you know, multiple billion Christians in the world and 1.5 billion Muslims spread out across huge regions. And the thing is, it always, it always felt to me like you can put Islam or Christianity into a region, but you don't take whatever that region had before completely out of the region. Like the way Islam is practiced in this region, as opposed to Saudi Arabia, as opposed to Pakistan, as opposed to Indonesia, as opposed to Mindanao are wildly different. Um, that was why, I mean, so you were there in, in, you, you said early 2013 is when you were, you were doing this region? No, I was there in October, 2013, October, 2013. So this was before Campari was removed in, uh, uh, was, was thrown out by popular protest. Yeah. But it was, you were there during a lot of the, the action in Mali, which was, I mean, there was, there was, there was a war on, um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I was driving right through Mali. I went to the tallest mountain. That's another adventure. I don't know if you want me to tell you about that story. But basically, yes, Mali was in a in a state where the war had officially ended, but there was still a, quite a bit of tension, lots and lots of checkpoints and military, and, and they didn't want me to go to certain... I was in the red zone, and so they didn't. They weren't very happy about me traveling around there and certainly didn't want to let me climb the tallest mountain of Mali, and I did so anyway. I snuck out at 2 o'clock in the morning. Two of my friends got thrown in jail as a result. Uh, because they thought that those my two buddies that I was with traveling with uh, they were they thought that they had colluded to kidnap me somewhere and so until I returned from the mountain which was like at 2 p.m. Um, they were stuck in jail uh, the whole time um, wow um, yeah so uh, I mean when Ansar al-Dine took power in in uh, and started conquering areas in northern Mali. It just seemed it just seemed really weird because it's like 
this is a re- this is a religiously chill. Re- it's kind of like like when 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 Al Shabaab became big in Somalia. It's like this is a region that is historically really chill about its religion in part because I think it's a really re- religiously diverse, it, it has really religiously diverse tradition, but also just in part because of the culture that's developed there over time. And so the idea of having these like really hardline radical guys trying to enforce Sharia. Yeah. Like it just seemed, it just seemed utterly out of place. Uh, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why they were unpopular. And one of the reasons why they, to this point, have not been successful in holding on to to the areas that they took. Well, there's also, I mean, in in when you go to these places in the Sahara, you definitely feel a sense of racism that exists between the Arabs and then the blacks. <clears throat> that the, the Arabs really look down on the blacks. And in the case of Mali, for example, they have uranium in the Arab-ish region, and so uranium is like their biggest, you know. Uh, you know, uh, sorry, I'm, not, I'm talking about Niger now. I'm flipping over to Niger. In, in Niger, it's, it's very similar topography as Mali. You've got the north, which is kind of Arabic, and you've got the south, which is basically black. And so in Niger, they've got a ton of uranium, and, and uh, the people there kind of want to fight against the government to become independent, partially so that they could control that, uh, you know, basically nice resource that they have. And uh, but you're right; they're not uh, Africans in general. Are incredibly laid-back people, and uh, they do take their. They are quite religious, certainly so. Very spiritual people. They believe a lot in spirits and 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 afterlife and all this other stuff. But at the same time, they're very easygoing people, and so they 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 might show up a little bit late for the mosque. Uh, they might uh, not go every Sunday to church, but then, you know, then you've got the other extreme you've got in Ghana and Nigeria, you know, some people are incredibly religious, but the bottom line is um, a lot of times these, these, these uh, fights that are, are talked about are couched in terms of religion, but it's not always uh, just religion. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the cool things so far about the political upheaval in, in, in Burkina Faso is that a it, it kind of grew out of this kind of king's dilemma type thing where Blaise Compaoré takes power, he's not particularly democratic, but he puts in place a series of reforms that over time build a civil society and enough of a free press that eventually people get tired of him, and and then you, you have uh, popular protest, he's removed, and and you have actual democratic elections, and it's it's this sort of slow process, but but the the actual transition and all of the, the instability has really not been ethnotized. Like you were going over the ethnic groups in the country. That's not really, it doesn't seem like that's really been the fault line. And, and it's, I don't know, it's, it's promising because a lot of times the, the way I've always looked at it is that it's never about the specific, or it's seldom about the specifics of the, the religion or the ethnic or the racial distinctions. It's more about, the, the dynamics of how they relate to each other. And so if people have a legitimate reason or a perceived reason to fear another group, like those guys are going to take our resources or those guys are going to, you know, those guys historically enslaved us or, or you know, those guys are, you know, the, the, they're numerically superior. So if we have an election, we're going to lose. Then they start behaving in, in identity politics type ways and you, you get this, this instability, but that's, that's not really seemed to be what's, what's been driving it in, 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 in Burkina Faso. And so I, I sort of, it's, it seems really optimistic. 
Well, I mean, I think it's also part of what Steven Pinker talked about in The Better Evangels of Our Nature, which is a fantastic book, a uh, big one, um, about the long-term decline of violence throughout the world. And, the, you know, if this was 50 years ago and certainly 500 years ago, this, you know, a lot of these events like this coup d'etat, for example, uh, would have been much more violent. And I think that there's just another evidence of the trend to the diminished violence throughout the world. And so I'm, I was happy to see that the Burkina revolution or whatever upheaval was uh, largely peaceful. And I think that's happening throughout Africa. I mean, it's, it's a lot of these uh, leaders, they're trying to push their luck. They're trying to change the constitution, but they're, they're getting resistance. And the, the problem is resolving itself in a relatively peaceful fashion, much less violent than before. Yeah, and you have, I mean, you have regional, you kind of have regional standards that have now been set. Like the the idea that ECOWAS or the, the Southern African region, which expelled Madagascar when it had a political coup, um, will ostracize a country that, has, that politically regresses is, uh, I mean, that's kind of an exciting development for me. I mean, this, West Africa, just to, I mean... Even a few years ago, when I was at the UN, there was a point where you had a, a brutal coup in in Guinea-Bissau where the president and the army chief both had each other shot on the same day. And then the Security Council didn't even react. They just uh, they waited until there was also a coup in Guinea and then another one in Mauritania, and then they condemned coups in West Africa in general. So this has been a historically unstable region, and a lot of the countries are, are kind of tied together because they've all, at various points, taken each other's refugees uh, over the course of the past 30 or 40 years. You know, when, when Burkina Faso was unstable, then people would flee to Mali. When Mali was unstable, they'd flee back. Um, so it, it really seems like... Uh, regionally things are you're you're starting to get a, a sense of of regional cooperation and and regional kind of standards of governance that that are really that really seem promising i agree with you i mean it's uh, another we 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 start off this conversation talking about whether people are a little bit more connected to their tribe or to their nation and that's something that i was very curious about going into uh africa and just trying to find out that dichotomy you know that tension or, and and in general, um, I think that people are slowly in, in this century. You're you're starting to see much more people identify with their nation, and especially because of uh, soccer games and that kind of stuff that that galvanize people and, and pull people together. And in general, you know, I'd ask people about you know, you know, do you like that tribe? Do you dislike this tribe? Oh no, we we like them all. It's all good. It's all good. It's all good. And what about those? But here's the funny thing: is that when I was I spent three years in Eastern Europe and I was visiting all the countries there. And let's say I talked to Hungarians and I asked them, well, what do you guys think about Romanians? Oh, we don't like them. What about Croatians? Oh, we don't like them. These are all their neighbors. Uh, uh, you know, so, and then you go over to like Greece, uh, Greece. Uh, what do you think about Turkey? Oh, I hate them. What about the guys north of you, Macedonia? That's not even a country. Um, what about the people, <laughs> Albanians? Oh, we hate them too. I'm like, everybody in Eastern Europe pretty much hates their neighbor. And it was, you know, really depressing. Uh, and then you come to Africa. And then you go to Burkina Faso, which is the size of Colorado. It's got a population of 19,000. It's landlocked just like Colorado. And then you start asking people like, hey, what do you think about uh, Mali? Oh, they're cool. What about uh, Ghana? Oh, nice spies. <laughs> 
What about Niger? I mean, all your neighbors, and they're like, they're all cool, no problems, no fights. And I was just thinking, wow, this is this is great. It's such a refreshing change from Eastern Europe. <laughs> I, I yeah, I do fundamentally think that people get along uh, unless they're they're conditioned through historical narratives to fear each other collectively. I, I've been reading Rebecca West's sort of magisterial eleven hundred page epic travelogue called. Black Lamb Gray Falcon about her time in, in Yugoslavia in the interwar period, like 1936, yeah. 1937. Famous book. And, yeah, and you, you could just see, I mean, one of the reasons it's endured is that you can just see, first of all, her writing is amazing, but you could see just all of the wheels coming loose and being ready to come off, like all of the different fault lines regionally, locally, historically, Europe-wide, you know, the way that the German tourists treat the, the the Slavs when they come down and visit, the way the Croats will just talk about how their narrative is such and such, and the Serbs have been screwing them for hundreds of years. And I was just like, this doesn't seem realistic. People aren't really like this. But, <laughs> I don't know, sometimes, um, I mean, it's funny that you, you went there 80 years later and kind of had the same reaction. <laughs> Absolutely. No, in fact, uh, in The Hidden Europe, I actually quote Rebecca a few times in her book just to demonstrate how little has changed. One of the things that I, I wanted to mention, somehow we're, we're, even though I was like, we're not going to talk about politics, we, we wind up talking about politics because this is me. Um, <laughs> but um, one, of the, one of the things that, so I've, I've not been to this region and I haven't been, I don't think I've ever been to a, to a country with, uh, you know, it's like a per capita GDP that, that is as low as, as Burkina Faso's. It's one of the poorest countries in the world. Um, but in, in, when I have traveled to places where uh, the level, the income disparity between the United States and the country in question was pretty outstanding, like Southern, Southern Philippines and northern vietnam and and morocco and things like that one of the issues that i've always found is that i want to get to know people uh when i meet them but there's an almost inherently transactional quality to my interactions with them because even even though most of these places i visited as a student and didn't have any money even my definition of not having money was significantly more money than than any of the folks I was meeting. So if I meet somebody on the street or in a coffee shop, um, the potential, the potential that I have monetarily for them is so great that it kind of, I felt it kind of colored a lot of the, the interactions I had. Like if I, if they can, you know, sell me something for 10 bucks or get me to pay them 20 bucks to show them, show me around town all day, like that's, that's a month's income for them. And so it, it was always, it was difficult for me to, to, to feel that I was having genuine interactions. It, it felt colored in the way. So how do you, like when you're traveling in a region like this, how do you deal with that? Well, that's a good question. I mean, the best antidote for that is just to stay in one region for a long time. And so eventually they just get used to it and they start treating you like a normal person. And then you get away from this kind of transactional nature. Um, and that's the easiest way. And for my case, I spent most of my one month, that I, I spent about five weeks in Burkina Faso, I spent most of it in Bobo Dialasso, which is in the west side of, 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 and there it was because I was repairing my car and, you know, the mechanic said, you oh, know, it's going to take uh, probably a day or two to fix your car. I w ended up staying there like over nearly a month. <laughs> 
every single day the the mechanic would say you know another another day or it'll be ready this afternoon and and i was actually living in the house because then i said to him well i don't know where i'm going to stay here in bobo dia so and they just call it bobo and and the 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 mechanic the guy told me, he says, well, I'm the son of the mechanic and you can just stay in my ex dad little house, like a one room apartment building, whatever, um, extra. And then that's why I stayed. I ended up staying there for almost four. And so then I just became a regular because all the people in the town saw me and they got used to me. And, and just like, then you can start interacting with people. The other thing, of course, that helps, which is, is not having a language barrier. And I speak, you know, I'm fluent in French. I'm fluent in several languages. So it, that allowed me to break through and get a more a genuine understanding with all these people. Um, so we're 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 almost out of time here, but I would I would love to get us a, a, a maybe just a a roundup of if you could sort of summarize your 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 path so far and where you're where you're you're going. And I presume a third book is going to come out of this eventually. That's right. Yeah, it'll be called the Unseen Africa. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's basically I'm headed, I headed down West Africa and Central Africa and then down to Southern Africa where I am now in 2015 and 2016, I'll be heading into East Africa, including the the islands out there, Madagascar, uh, the Seychelles and that kind of stuff. And then in 2017, I'll start going up into North Africa, but I think it's going to take until 2018 to be completely done. So that's the general trajectory. What's the uh, what's the country you've not visited yet that you're most excited to see? Um, that's a good question. I'm excited to go across Madagascar. I'm gonna I want to cross it all by foot, uh, starting in the northern tip and then walk all the way down to the southern tip. It should take about four months of hiking, um, so that's going to be pretty fun. Um, I am interested in in just the Seychelles and and all these kind of exotic islands like uh, Mauritius. Um, that should be fun. Uh, Réunion, which is an island out there. Uh, just because it's going to be so different from what I'm I'm used to, I'm also interested in Burkina uh, Botswana because Botswana is one of these the only landlocked country. I think Africa has about fourteen landlocked countries or at least eleven, um, and uh, and Botswana is incredibly successful. It's one of the top uh, five GDP per capita in Africa. So that's going to be uh, fascinating, and uh, just uh, interested to see uh, anyway Somalia too. All these kind of wacky places how, how are you going to do somali are you just going to do somaliland or or how, how are you going to do uh, the rest i'm not of a it? pussy i'm not a pussy come on i'm going to go see see somalia proper i want to ideally see puntland so those who don't know somaliland sorry somalia is divided into three regions and you've got puntland which is in the corner somaliland which is in the kind of north and then somalia proper which has mogadishu so i want to see all three of them i mean I, i'll play it by year when i get there in 2016 but um yeah, it will be it will be interesting once I get there and, and see how they plan. But I don't want to just see Somalia land. That definitely would be being wimping out there. We're gonna have to do we're we're gonna have to do a Somalia podcast when you get there, and we're <laughs> okay. gonna ha- we're gonna have to do a Mauritius podcast when you get okay. there, just because Mauritius has been a long time interest of mine, just for for island biogeography regions reasons. Before before you get there, may I recommend reading David Quammen's The Song of the Dodo, which is about island biogeography and kind of how island how isolated ecosystems work and and how they interact with with mainland and and with humans when they finally meet them and it it really it'll like especially for madagascar and mauritius and reunion it'll really change your your sense of the the physical layout of what you're seeing 
Oh, no, that's exciting. Yeah. And then, by the way, I'll make a non sequitur prediction about the dodo. I think that in your lifetime, Joe, you'll see the dodo come back. They're going to bring it back like Jurassic Park style? Yeah. I think in your lifetime, yes. I, I could see that. I feel like the I feel like the Tasmanian tiger and the mastodon are the best candidates. Like there's yeah. the the territory they lived in, they died so recently that we have plenty of genetic material. The territory that they lived in is is large, uh, well maintained, pretty much largely uninhabited in large cases. Maybe not for the t- the tiger, but for the for the mastodon, um, you have wide open spaces. They could totally exist in the modern age if they hadn't been exterminated by us. But the dodo is a really good candidate, and uh, there's there's a fair amount of dodo bones out there, and and maybe this can happen. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, one last thing, I want to leave your listeners uh, with this idea that we we kind of skirted around it, but I just want to say it more bluntly. Uh, just my experience in West Africa, in places like Mali or Burkina Faso, right? So Mali, I came in right after uh, conflict. I, I was in Burkina Faso right before the conflict. I've been in places during conflicts. And in general, everything is a lot more cush and, and easygoing than you imagine in the media. And so we have these fears of going to certain places and, no, I don't want to travel there. Um, you got to get over that. I mean, it's just things are a lot more relaxed uh, and, and, and things are functioning far better than you would imagine if you just read the newspaper. Yeah, it's, uh, th- this really struck me when I, because I used to feel this way, you know, I was at the UN, so I would only hear about the bad stuff. And then, so I went off to graduate school, and I spent a year in Bologna and a year in D.C., and the class is about 50% Americans and 50% everybody else, mostly Europeans. And when we finished the year in Bologna and came back to D.C., I realized that all of the non-Americans were terrified of going to D.C. because they'd read about the murder rate, and they were like, I'm going to get shot. I'm going to die. And I was like, no, it's D.C. It's cool. So I think, I feel like the whole world is this way. Like, it's, it, you only, you know, the old phrase is the map is not the territory, but life is not the news. The news is important, but it's, there, there's so much more than that. Yeah, man. That's well said. Uh, Francis, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, this is your chance to plug all of your various, you know, where you are online, where people can find you and, and find out more about your adventures. Um, the easiest way for a lot of people to remember if they're just listening to this is africa54.com. And if you go there, it's going to lead you to the network of my life, uh, on my digital life. So you can find me on Facebook, Twitter. And another way to remind if it's a little bit harder than africa54.com is just F tapon. So F and my last name, tampon without an M. It's easy. You'll never forget that. And then that's the same. That's my handle for Twitter and Facebook and on and on. So F tapon will take you to all sorts of places too. But uh, yeah, go ahead and... Uh, uh, join in on the conversation and uh, any tips about uh, my upcoming countries in Africa, I'd love to hear. And uh, you can find the podcast uh, on my website at joegenie.com slash podcast. And you can find all of my other uh, uh, activities online as well at joegenie.com. That's J-O-E-G-E-N-I.com. I've got a blog. I've got research papers. I've got music, uh, all kinds of stuff. Uh, check it out. And, and as always, uh, if you do not already subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, please do. It's uh, The podcast is called Ambassadors at Large. And... Uh, Subscribe on iTunes. Leave us a five-star review. Uh, We will be delighted to have it. 
even a not five star review just just leave us a review and uh tell us how to tell you what you think about the show uh francis thank you so much for coming on and uh, and we'll have to do this again all right thanks so much Jeff.